All right, if you will, come on in and have a seat and join us tonight. We're glad that you decided to be with us. If you decided to come out in person and get through the rain and all the weather outside, we're glad that we can see you tonight and hopefully we can talk to you afterwards and just catch up. But if you're online with us, we're glad you decided to log in tonight. We hope that uh, tonight will be a beneficial period of Bible study for you and your family. Uh, before we get into our study tonight, we have a few announcements we want everybody to be aware of. Uh, first of all, we want to remember Kelly Hunsinger and her family in the passing of her mom, Joanne Harrison, on January 21st. So please pray for Kelly and for the Hunsinger family as they deal with the loss of Joanne. So please, or Joan, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but please pray for that situation and for that family. I uh, want to also remember Cless Overly uh, and the Overly family in the passing of his father, Neil, on January 25th. So please pray for Cless. I know this has been a tough couple of years for him, and please pray for him as he has lost his uh, father. I want to remember Mary and McGill, who's been battling pneumonia and went to a scheduled CT scan today. And she had an allergic reaction to the contrast dye. Uh, she was taken to the ER uh, so that the allergic reaction could be monitored and managed. Uh, please pray uh, for Marion as she deals with that and uh, the obvious stress that that has caused her and her family. So please pray for Marion. You can also visit our health update page on our website for any post on others that you want to be made aware of. Uh, we have a bit of good news, uh, great news, uh, yesterday that uh, we were able to study the Word with Ashley Lee. This is a friend of Sarah Palmer and many others uh, like Misty Feldman and Connie Burnett and many others who have helped her as she has dealt with cancer, as they have helped her take her to different appointments and spend a lot of time with her throughout the last few months. I believe she's been living with Sarah and uh, Misty on and off throughout this whole year, really. And yesterday, we were able to study the Word with her and to baptize her into Christ. And so, amen, God is good, and it was an amazing day. Uh, it was very encouraging, and, and God is up to something at Buford this year with our theme, Go and Do. And we, we want to keep uh, the fire stoked, so keep on going and doing, and God was going to bring the increase. So wanted to make you aware of that and to be praying for Ashley as she continues to battle this terrible cancer uh, that is still prevalent in her life. So pray for Ashley, but also pray, God, uh, a, a prayer of thanks for her salvation. I want to make sure everybody under, uh, knows about the Owl Potluck Fellowship Meal. How exciting. We're having a Potluck Fellowship Meal for our Owls. Uh, that's going to be this Saturday in the Fellowship Hall from 12 to 2 p.m. You can see Harry or Natalie Garner for any questions you have about that. We'll take a moment and fill out an attendance card online on our Watch Live page. Uh, up there at the top now, you can find member attendance and visitor attendance, and please fill that out. You can also submit a prayer request that you want the elders or ministers to be aware of or something you want added to the bulletin. This Sunday we have many options for worship. First of all, we have Bible class at 9 a.m., worship at 10 a.m., and then uh, 6 p.m. we're going to have worship in a period of study uh, with the ministers of the Roundtable study in Ecclesiastes. And we know the options are, as you come in the main auditorium, to, it's recommended that you wear a mask as you enter and exit, and then downstairs is the mask-only section and then obviously we have online as well. So we hope to see you Sunday as you worship God, as we worship God together. We're looking forward to Sunday always. Before we get into our study tonight, I want to go to God in a word of prayer uh, for our study. Let's pray. Our dear, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've blessed us with to live and to be on this earth and Lord, sometimes this earth and the world that we live in is difficult for us. It's difficult for us to see all of the pain and all of the suffering and the illnesses and uh, just all of the things that 
we have to live with. But Lord, we have been challenged to know that all of the things that we deal with is just a little blip on the radar compared to what our life ahead is for us. We pray that each of us can, sim can simply just decide to look towards heaven each and every day where our real citizenship lies. And we pray that you will encourage us and strengthen us to do that. Lord, tonight as we open up your word, we pray that it will be a time for all of us to be edified, to be built up, to be challenged uh, in our faith and in our walk with you. As we look at these unsung heroes, we pray that we can emulate them in our life as best as we can. Help us tonight to remove the thoughts and the concerns and the cares of the world uh, and to leave them aside to where we can focus on your word and what you're trying to teach tonight. Thank you for Jesus who brings us here and gives us the opportunity to have salvation that we have just witnessed Ashley and James and others obey the gospel. We're so grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have been engaged in a study entitled Under the Radar, a study of the Bible's unsung heroes. And last week we continued our study of some of these greatest figures throughout the Bible who flew under the radar. Even though we do not often take the time to sing their praises, uh, we have understood throughout this study that they are still deserving of being viewed as, sometimes, their story's true hero. Even though we don't give them the spotlight. The study has been in, intended to shine light on these figures and give them the true uh, meaning behind what they did for the scriptures, for the stories that they are in. And so we've been engaging in this study so that each of us can individually continue to discover our place in the body of Christ. As we discover what each of us can do, what function and what role that we can play for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Because sometimes as we try to find where we can be effective individually, where we can make a difference, sometimes that can be very daunting, can't it? It can be very daunting trying to find out what God wants us to do because we read in the first study in 1 Corinthians 12 that He has set the members among the body of Christ, that He has given us the function that we are to fulfill, that He is the one who has given us the roles that He expects for us to do. So sometimes it's daunting, it's, it's challenging, it's confusing. And it can often even lead to some of us, any of us, simply giving up on ever doing anything because we do not know where we fit in. But because of these heroes throughout this study, hopefully as we look at these Figures who flew under the radar, they have helped teach us that we don't have to be Paul, we don't have to be Peter, we do not have to be Moses, we do not have to be David. We do not have to be these larger-than-life figures to make an impact and a difference for God. Our first lesson, we looked at the life of Mordecai. We went to the book of Esther and we studied his legacy. And we saw how his persistent humility saved the entire nation of Israel from mass genocide. And then we looked at the life of Luke, and we discovered that he had this pattern of preserving things. He preserved the life of Jesus, he preserved the life of the church, and he preserved the life of Paul. And he challenged us that we too can preserve the truths and the pattern that have been revealed through the Scriptures when we stand up for the truth and what we know is right. And then we continued in our study the next week talking about Shifra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat and how they feared God. The monumental impact that these three widely unknown women had in the entire story of the Bible. How they feared God even though it was up against the Pharaoh, even though it was up against the leader of Israel, they feared God anyway. 
And then after that, we studied uh, one week on the life of Andrew, the forgotten apostle. We looked at his example and how every time throughout this Gospel of John, every time we see Andrew, it's because he has just brought someone else to Jesus. Because if he, he believed if they just got before him, if they just got to see Jesus, that he would know what to do, that Jesus would know what to say. And He challenges us to go and to bring others to Jesus as well. And then after that, we went back to the Old Testament and we looked at the life of one of the twelve, yep, one of the twelve uh, spies. I said twelve. I'm going to say it one more time. Twelve spies. Uh, and we saw in that story... One of the greatest spy stories of all time, the life of Caleb, right? We saw the life of Caleb and we saw how he was all in. How he was all in when the overwhelmingly majority was not all in. We challenge ourselves with the questions, are we all in at the end of that study? And then last week we were talking about the unbelievable impact that Dorcas had as a pillar of the church. We saw that she had a servant heart, that she was always doing good and excelled in acts of charity, that she made it her habit to serve and to care for others. Her impact being so great that God allowed her to be raised from the dead, right? He saw that her impact was so great that He allowed Peter to raise her from the dead. And we challenged ourselves to put our names in Acts chapter 9 and verse 36 and ask ourselves, does this apply to us? And so that's what we've been doing throughout our quarter thus far. And with that, we are ready to start our study tonight. We'll be taking a trip back into the Old Testament to study the life of a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Someone who didn't have a selfish bone in all of his body. Someone who was a warrior, a master bowman, uh, one of the greatest brother-in-laws in all of Scripture, the first prince of Israel who accepted God's decision and fully supported the true heir to the throne, even though it was seemingly being stripped away from himself. Many of you may not have guessed this one. Many of you may have. But we are going to be studying the life of Jonathan. We're going to be studying the life of Jonathan tonight. His story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Let's go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Jonathan's story is truly amazing. It, it spans throughout much of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel even. And tonight as we go through our study, we're going to be covering a whole bunch of text. I, I want to say that up front. And just bear with me, and as we summarize the events through many of the chapters that we're going to be studying tonight, just follow along in your text with me as we progress throughout the life of Jonathan and the great legacy that we have to learn from tonight. With that, we're ready to go with a chapter 13 overview. At the beginning of chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, it says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, it's a fun city name, and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Okay, so here we see that Saul has split the army of Israel into two groups. Saul has one group. And Jonathan has the other group. And what happens after this is that Jonathan attacks a garrison of the Philistines. And he destroys them. And this, when this happens, it makes the rest of the Philistines gather up and want to attack Israel. So Jonathan has just attacked this garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines are going to retaliate. Except when the Philistines retaliate... They're really bringing the hammer. I mean, they are bringing all they got. Every single thing they have. Look at verse 5 with me. 
In verse 5 it says, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And so many of the Israelites are scared of this great force. They just imagine, you know, we know this is hyperbole, obviously, but the writer says that they were like the sand on the seashore. This is how great of an army the Philistines were. They had 30,000 chariots. They had 6,000 horsemen, and they had people as many as the sands on the seashore, it says. Just imagine this great multitude up against the measly 3,000 we're told of when it comes to Israel. Think of the tremendous army that is before them. So what do they do? Inevitably, what does Israel do? Israel automatically runs. Most of the army runs away. They are in terror of this, of this force that's before them. They are scared for their life. And so Saul decides to make this burnt offering that was unlawful, and Samuel foretells of a new king that is to come. A new king that would be after God's own heart. A new commander for the people of God who will actually follow the commands that God has given. And that's all well and good, right, Samuel? It's great that we're getting a new king. This guy is a bum. Saul is not making good decisions. It's great that we're getting a new king, but what about right now? Is he going to show up right now and save the day? Look at this force in front of us. In the meantime, Israel's in a tough spot, right? Many of the 3,000 have abandoned ship. They are hiding out in caves to the point that there are only 600 men left with Saul. And not only that, but they didn't have any weapons to speak of. All they had was simple Farmers' weapons. They didn't have any weapons. None of them had swords. All they had was simple tools, no serious weapons, especially weapons good enough and needed to combat the Philistine army. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. So out of this whole army, only two people have swords. Look at the immense thing before them. The sands on the seashore is the best metaphor that they had. Or simile, one of those. My mom will tell me later which one it was. But that's the best thing that they had to compare this to. Was the sand on the seashore. That's what's in front of them. It's a pretty rough spot. Imagine where Jonathan is right now. Imagine the spot that Jonathan is in. He is over this part of the army. But guess what? Most of the army of Israel has abandoned you. You're having to follow your dad, who's just been told he's going to be replaced as king. He is just dead weight, right? You're having to follow your dad, who's just been told that he's no longer God's chosen anointed. And you have a multitude as the sea, as the sand on the seashore in front of you, a Philistine searching for you. So what does Jonathan do? This is where he runs, right? No. Chapter 14 tells us more about what happens after this. Notice in my Bible, spoiler alert, the headline says Jonathan defeats the Philistines. So I don't know what your Bible says is the headline. But let's read verse 1. Now it happened on one day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Okay, so let's just skip a little bit. In verse 6, we're going to read it in a second, but that's exactly what Jonathan does. He and his arm bearer, they go and they go back behind the Philistine army and they go and they're going to attack, but they haven't told anybody that they're going to do this. In verse 6 it says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his arm bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you. 
according to your heart. And then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. And so here is Saul and all of the army of Israel. They're hiding in caves. They have complete fear of the Philistine army. They are not about to leave the cave. They don't know what they're going to do. Saul is biting his nails off. He doesn't know what to do as the leader. And Jonathan, instead of just sitting there waiting to be destroyed, instead of just waiting for the Philistines to wipe them off the face of the earth, Jonathan's going to go out swinging. Jonathan's going to go out fighting, and hey, who knows? Maybe if the Lord delights in us, He will fight for us, he says. Because nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few, he says. And so the arm bearer, this guy, this simple young man that's with him, he's inspired by this faith that Jonathan has. He agrees to go with him. And then Jonathan goes before the Philistine army. And over the next few verses, he's going to talk about what sign God is going to give. What sign God is going to give. If God is with us, this is going to happen. If He's not with us, this is going to happen. But either way, we're going to face the Philistine. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, as soon as they get there, the sign happens. God is with them. The Lord is with them. And he says in verse 12, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And what happens next is they have a great fear among them as Philistines. This great number of people are scared for their lives because of how many men? Two. Two. Jonathan and his arm bearer are facing 30,000 plus six plus the multitude of the seashore, men in front of them, and they are scared for their lives. How could this be? This great fear comes upon them and they flee out of nowhere. And God saved the Israelites because of Jonathan's immense faith. Can you imagine the scene? As Jonathan approaches this great multitude, this army that seemingly no one could defeat, by himself, and they all run away, seemingly out of nowhere. He faced as many enemies as there are sand on the seashore, the hyperbole says by himself because his faith in God was strong enough to know that God was with him and so after that Saul makes this oath that everyone needs to fast everyone uh, needs to fast they don't need to eat and guess who wasn't there to hear this oath Jonathan Saul's son was not here to hear this oath and so guess what he eats everyone's favorite food honey right he eats some honey and therefore has broken this oath, this this command of the king, and the command of the king stated that if you eat, you should surely be put to death. So here Jonathan was, he didn't know of the oath, and he ate some honey. And after that happened, Saul has to face the consequence of being so ridiculous as to make such an oath, such a rash oath like this. Let's read verse 44. And Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And, And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die? Saul answered, God do so. And more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. What a great dad, right? Dad of the year moment. He says, God do it. Kill my son. Kill Jonathan because I made this command. I spoke out of the top of my head. I made this rash oath and now it's time for you to die. What a dad, right? 
And then what does he say? What, what happens in verse 45? Something amazing happens, really. In verse 45 it says, But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So the entire army of Israel that is remaining would not let a finger be laid on Jonathan. Why? Because of his great faith. And it says, let's read it again, Certainly not, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. For he has worked with God this day. That's what Jonathan had done. So moments after Jonathan had achieved one of the greatest military triumphs in all of Israel's history, in all the Bible, facing this great multitude by himself, his own father was ready to have him executed for breaking this ridiculous oath that he didn't even know, that Jonathan didn't even know he was breaking. So the people choose Jonathan above their own king. They choose the son of the king above their own king. Why? Because it was obvious that God was working with Jonathan and no longer working with Saul who had Israel literally hiding in caves. That's how Saul was leading the situation. And so they choose Jonathan instead of their own king. And the next time that we read about Jonathan is a few chapters later in chapter 18. But notice what happens all in between that. A lot takes place in between when we last see Jonathan in chapter 18. Saul has gone on to spare Agag, which was the final nail in his coffin, right? And then David has been anointed king, and then David has defeated Goliath. I mean, a lot has taken place in between the last time we hear of Jonathan and this time. But in chapter 18, let's start in verse 1. This is after David has defeated Goliath, remember? And he comes and he's talking to Saul, and this is what happens. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Let's stop right there. I want us to all realize what has just happened. I want us to realize what has just happened in this text right here. Because I think if we don't realize what's just happened, it may fly right over our heads. Jonathan, the first prince of Israel, the man who faced the multitude of Philistines all alone. David went before Goliath, but he went before you know, probably close to 50,000, 60,000 Philistines. That's Jonathan. Jonathan, the man who the entire army of Israel chose him instead of the king and in so doing defied Saul. That Jonathan. Jonathan, the next in line to the throne of God's people. That Jonathan. How does he respond to this kid, David? Instead of being bitter, instead of being jealous, instead of having greed, instead of having spite, instead of devising a plan to keep the kingship for himself, all of this is also known as instead of being Saul, instead of thinking how much his dad's decisions has ruined his chances at ever becoming king, he didn't do anything not to deserve the kingship. His dad did things, and he has to live with that. Instead of thinking about all of that, instead of thinking about how this would affect his life, his legacy, his fame, 
Jonathan realized that this was the man that God had chosen. That David was the man that God anointed for the kingship. He realized that God chose David. And instead of getting depressed, instead of getting vengeful, instead of getting sad, he rejoices in the opportunity to serve God's chosen. And so it says that his life was bound up with the life of David from that moment. That's what the text means by his soul was knit to David's. His soul, his life was bound together with David at that moment. And he made this covenant with David to serve David, the true king of Israel. And not only that, he gives him his robe, he gives him his armor, he gives him his sword, his bow, his belt, everything he's got. And after this, the text continues to talk about how David's fame begins to spread. The fame of David begins to spread and we see the classic story of them coming in the city and the women screaming, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands, right? Then the story of Saul trying to pin David to the wall with a spear happens. And then Saul uh, gets a little uh, cocky and says, well, if you go kill you know, 200 Philistines or 100 Philistines, I'll give you my daughter, Michael. Well, he lost that because sure enough, David went out and did double. And so everything Saul does to try to stop David doesn't work. David continues to be successful and Saul continues to lose every single time. And that is because the Lord is obviously with David. And so in the beginning of chapter 19, we see that Saul has had enough. He's sick of it. He's sick of David. He's sick of this kid trying to take his throne even though God has told him that you are no longer king. He's sick of David. And he wants him killed. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. And thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant against David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his works have been very good towards you, for he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And what Jonathan does here is really amazing. I don't want this to fly over our heads either. Not only is Jonathan being loyal and faithful and honoring to his own dad, this dad, Saul, who was just fine and dandy with him being killed a couple of chapters ago, not only is he still being respectful to that man who ruined his shot to be king, he's also protecting his friend David and honoring God's chosen at the same time. He's balancing this on this balance beam of honoring his own father who doesn't deserve it and honoring God's anointed in David. Jonathan is the only thing keeping this from blowing up. And so he convinces Saul that it's not David's fault. He reminds him, hey, you were there. We all rejoiced when he killed the Philistine Goliath. Where is this coming from, Dad? And so the text says that Saul relented, but the text goes on to show that this peace did not last long. This oath that he took before God did not last too long because the distressing spirit came to Saul again and he sought to pin David to the wall with a spear again. And David has to flee. And so after he flees, he meets up with Jonathan again in chapter 20. 
where he and Jonathan devise a plan to spare David's life. And throughout the beginning of this chapter, Jonathan is willing to do whatever it takes to preserve David's life because of the deep love, the commitment to God's chosen and God's anointed. And he talks about, they, they talk together, one another, about how they're going to get through this, how they're going to spare David's life. And Jonathan has to cover for David. He goes away for many days and he has to tell Saul why David's, why David's missing. And after a couple of days, Saul figures something out, that something's up. And in verse 30 it says, Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? And then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. Now let's just look at how messed up of a father this is in our story tonight. How messed up Saul is in our story tonight. Not only did he try to have his son killed for eating some honey after one of Israel's greatest victories that he brought them, but now he's calling his own son names. And here he's trying to give his son one more chance. And I want you to imagine the picture that we get of Saul talking to Jonathan. This chance that he gives his son, he says, listen, can you imagine him say this? I'm just looking out what's best for you, Jonathan. I'm looking out what's best for you. Have you thought about this, Jonathan? If we do not take care of David, guess what's going to happen? You're not ever going to be king. You will never wear this crown. You will never sit on my throne. You'll never establish yourself or your kingdom. Jonathan, just bring him to me and I'll take care of it. I'm looking out at what's best for you. I'm your dad. I know what I'm saying. That's, that's how Saul's talking to Jonathan here. But instead of taking the bait, instead of saying, you know what, Dad, you're right, I do want my kingdom to be established, instead of doing that, he refuses. To which Saul attempts to have his own son killed for a second time. This time. He's not asking for permission. This time, he throws the spear himself. Can you imagine a worse father than what we see in this text tonight? And so after this, Jonathan goes to meet up with David. He, he gives him the sign, listen, it's not good. You need to run away. And so he gives him that sign and they meet together and they, they realize that this means goodbye. And they do not know if this would be the last time that they see each other. They would wind up seeing each other again, but they didn't know at the time. And so they weep and, and they embrace each other and they say goodbye to one another. And let's look at verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And over the next couple of, a couple of chapters, David's on the run. David goes and he gets 400 mighty men of valor, and, and Saul is even more off the rails, right? And he murders all the priests. And then Jonathan and David get to reunite in chapter 23, verses 16 and 18. And it would be the last time. Verse 15, so David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness as if in the forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. 
Can you imagine how tired David was? How scared, how alone, how weary he had become? And so Jonathan knows that, and he goes out to strengthen him. Some translations say to encourage him. And he tells Saul, he tells Jonathan, Saul's never going to find you. You know why? He's never going to harm you. You know why? Because you are the one whom God chose, and God is with you. He reminds him that God is going to establish him as king over Israel. It will happen. And that even Saul knows that fact that they will reign over Israel together side by side. David and Jonathan together as a mighty force for God. That's what he tells David. And that's exactly what David needed to hear to get through this wilderness. And so they make this other covenant before the Lord. And the text continues to talk about how David continues to run away to flee Saul and how Saul uh, gets... You know, David has a chance to take Saul's life a couple of times, but he spares it. And he continues to run away from Saul for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. And then at the end of this book, in chapter 31, Jonathan, the first prince of Israel, the man who stood alone against the multitude of Philistia, The man who submitted to God's will all the days of his life, Jonathan dies in battle. And that's how the book of 1 Samuel ends. Is Saul and Jonathan dead on the battlefield. And then the next book picks up right where it left off when David discovers that Saul and Jonathan had died. And when he discovers this, honestly, this is one of the saddest chapters in all the Old Testament, if you read it. David is so distraught that his entire army has to mourn. They weep, they tear their clothes, they start to fast. And then David, as only he can, writes a song. He writes a song called the Song of the Bow. Why? Because Jonathan was a master bowman. And he commemorated the life of his dear friend, and his brother, Jonathan, whom his soul was knit to, and their lives were bound together. And that's where the story of Jonathan ends for most people. Most people do not realize there is one more thing to be learned about the relationship between David and Jonathan. And that happens many chapters later in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is is the king. He is reigning over Israel. And they are having much success. And they are conquering everyone. The ark fiasco has already taken place. And in chapter 9, he says in verse 1, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? For Jonathan's sake. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Zebah. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Zebah? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Zebah said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Zabah said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, the Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Zabah, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. 
You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Zabah had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Zabah said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Zabah were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both of his feet. I want you to remember back at the covenant that Jonathan had made with David all those years ago. And remember the vow that they had made with each other. That they had asked the Lord that God would be in between their descendants all throughout the ages. That David and Jonathan's descendants would be together all the days of their lives because their soul were knit together. Because their lives had been bound together. And all these years later, after Jonathan is gone, David keeps that end of the covenant. And he takes in this son that Jonathan has that is lame in both of his feet and he allows him not only to eat of the king's food, but to eat at his own table beside him. Why? Because of his dad, Jonathan, and how much he meant to David. David took this son, Mephibosheth, as his own for the rest of his life. The text says, As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Tonight you may be thinking, wow, that's, that's a great story. What a great reminder, right? That, what a great reminder. I'd forgotten some of that about the life of Jonathan. But Ben, how, how does this teach me how I can be like Jonathan? How can I be like Jonathan? I'm not in a position to stand up to an army single-handedly. I'm not in a position to watch some other man seemingly take the king and the throne away from me. I'm not in a position to preserve the life of God's anointed. How can I be like Jonathan? The fact is that none of us might be able to be David. None of us might be able to be the anointed, chosen one of God. The man after God's own heart. The man who defeated Goliath. The man who would just as easily one day play a beautiful song on a harp and then the next day kill 200 Philistines. None of us may be able to be King David. But every single one of us in this room tonight and online can be Jonathan. Because all Jonathan did throughout his entire life, all he did, simply put, was that he denied himself. Jonathan denied himself throughout his entire life. And you know, we've talked about everything Jonathan did and, and all that the Bible has to say about Jonathan. But we haven't talked about the meaning of the name Jonathan. The meaning of the name Jonathan in their language would have meant God has given. God has given. You know, as we think about the life of Jonathan tonight, as we've just studied it and looked at it, is there a better descriptor than that? God has given. Jonathan was the one whom God gave David. 
You see, because God knew that David was going to have to go through so many things, that he knew all the things that he was going to have to endure, all the attempted murders, all the running, all the fleeing, all the stress, all the anxiety, all the loneliness that David was going to have to go through. So he gave him Jonathan. God has given You know, even though David was the one who faced Goliath, even though David was the one who defeated tens of thousands of enemy Philistines, even though David was the one who was to become king of all Israel, even though he was the anointed of God, the man after his own heart, my question tonight for us is where would he have been without Jonathan? Where would David have been without Jonathan? Jonathan who from the very moment they met accepted him as the Lord's anointed. Who for the first time they met him, he made a covenant with him. Instead of causing some sort of division, some sort of coup, some sort of fight against this new anointed, he accepted God's will. Jonathan, who made sure that Saul would stop trying to kill David by any means necessary. Jonathan, who made sure David was able to escape the madness of his father and to stay away. Jonathan, who went to encourage David in the middle of that wilderness to strengthen him. To give him the strength he needed to get through the next weeks and months. Jonathan, whose soul was knit whose life was bound to the life of David. Where would David be if Jonathan had not denied himself? Tonight, as we look at our lives, it's pretty obvious that the New Testament teaches us that we have to deny ourselves. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, If any man desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Paul would say in Romans 12 and verse 10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. And Paul would also say in Philippians 2 and verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. You see, in order for us, in order for the church, the body of God to be the, the, the body that He desired originally, when He gave us His Son, that we're going to have to have a whole bunch of people who are willing to deny themselves who are willing to not give preference to themselves, but to others, who are willing to look out for others' interests more than they look at their own. Because if the life of Jonathan teaches us anything, it is that Jonathan denied himself the throne of Israel. He denied himself the fame, the fortune, the crown. He gave that preference to someone else. And he didn't look at his own interests. He looked at the interests of David. Why? Because he was God's chosen. He looked at David's interest, he not his own. Why? Because he put his own life at risk by choosing to prefer David over his own father. Why would he do this? Why would he put his own life at risk? Why would he allow David to have the throne? That was his! How against all nature is that? Why would he do it? Well, he did it because that's exactly what God wanted him to do. Point blank, period. He didn't do it because it was popular. He didn't do it because it was something he had to gain from this. In fact, he had everything to lose. He didn't do it for any other reason than the fact that David was God's chosen one. And therefore, he said to himself, I got to deny myself. I must deny myself. I must 
prefer Him. I must look out for His interest because God chose Him. Tonight, the question is, what if we treated each other like this? What if we treated each other the way Jonathan treated David? You see, because when we look at the church, the body of Christ, we are the chosen. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. So what if we understood the same way Jonathan did, that we have got to look out for God's chosen ones? When it comes to God's chosen ones, we need to deny ourselves. We need to give preference to them, and we need to look out for their interest and not our own. What if we took the example of Jonathan? That since each of us are the chosen of God, that I need to deny myself for that person. I need to give preference to that person. And I need to look out for their interest above my own. Simply because that's what God wants me to do. How much better would the church be how much division would simply dissipate Years worth of grudge. Years worth of division because something somebody said 20 years ago. If we would deny ourselves, give preference to the other, and look out for their interest, how much better off would we all be? How much growth would happen from, from us? Because we were simply willing to deny ourselves. More importantly, what if we took this example of Jonathan and how he viewed the world? How he needed to deny himself, give preference, and to look out for someone else's interest. What if we looked at the world that way? How much better would we be if when we looked at the lost, we began to deny ourselves? when we looked at those who are outside of the church, that we began to give the preference to them and show the love of Christ to them and look out for their interest above our own. Jonathan denied himself all the days of his life. And he is the one that God gave to David. Tonight, can anyone say that God gave you to them? Can anyone tonight say that God gave me you? You were sent from God in the way that you have denied yourself, in the way that you have given preference to me in the way that you have looked out for my interest above your own interest, above your own preference, above your own self and all the things that you needed, God gave me you. Can anyone say that about you tonight? Or are we so caught up in what we need, in what we are going through, in what we are busy with, that we don't ever deny ourselves, we don't ever prefer anyone else, and we don't ever look out for anyone's interest but our own. If that is the case, then I'm afraid we've missed the entire point of the life of Jonathan. And we are not ready to be a functioning part or have a role in the body of Christ because Jesus Christ said, if anyone desires to come up after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The life of Jonathan teaches us a 
case study on how to deny yourself. All the things that he gave up. All the things that he handed over to David simply because that's what God wanted him to do. Tonight, what do you need to give up? What do you need to give up in your life? Is it a sin? Is it some sort of entanglement that you have within your own soul and your own body and your own life that you're holding on to that you need to give up? Is it some sort of jealousy or envy or strife or division or grudge or jealousy? that you've been holding on to for years? Do you need to let go of it? Is it simply apathy towards the lost? That as you go about your day, you're not thinking about the lost, you're not thinking about how the people around you do not have a relationship with God, and without your intervention, they never will. Is that what you need to let go of tonight? Because the life of Jonathan teaches us that it's worth it. He could have held on to that throne. He could have held on to that crown. He could have held on to all of it if he wanted to. And he could have followed the example of his dad who wound up killing himself on the battlefield. But instead, Jonathan is seen as a victorious figure in Scripture because he denied himself. And if we look at the example of this unsung hero tonight and apply it to our own life, how much better would the kingdom be if we would simply deny ourselves, take up His cross, and follow Him? Thank you. Brother Scott Sitton is going to close us in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear loving Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for being such a wonderful and amazing Father, someone we can go to at all times and know that you're there for us.